Thank you, guys. I would encourage you always, but especially today, keep your Bibles out. We're gonna we're gonna jump around yeah. to some passages. Um, none of those that were read out loud will be primarily look at. I more want to introduce baptism overall and really hit on a bunch of stuff. But anything, um, encourage you to jump back a bit to Acts chapter two. We'll get here in just a moment. Um, we're doing baptism right now in part because, and, and want to encourage you, this is always hopefully good to do. By the way, I just saw Joseph there. Joseph, welcome back very briefly before you take off again. Joseph is a world traveler these days. You're about to go to Argentina, right? Okay, we're, we're so glad you're back for a week, Joseph. Um, encourage you to, whether it's writing it down, whether it's just thinking about it, we're going to have a conversation after church day about baptism. I would love for you to be able to ask whatever questions you have, theologically, practically, autobiographically. If there's anything that, that you don't feel... I'm comfortable sharing in front of others, like, no, Nick, I was baptized when I was young, or I'm not sure if I'm a Christian yet. I would love to meet up with any of you one-on-one. We're also hopeful that in about a month on Easter Sunday, we'll do a baptism ceremony. There's a number of people in our congregation who are interested in getting baptized. baptized. That's why we're doing it right now. This is going to jump ahead to something that, that we usually do at the end of the sermon in this series, but just to connect the dots of why are we talking about baptism so early in this series? We talk about the gospel, we talk about the Trinity, should we talk about some other bigger stuff before we come to something smaller than baptism? And in some ways that's true, um, in, in some ways it's so that we can get ready for this conversation later today for Easter Sunday, but at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you don't need to turn here, last Sunday our theme, our vocab word was on the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Abuka just read this, the first thing we kind of, moment when we meet Jesus, is he comes out to be baptized by John, and the final moment in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is the risen Jesus now having received all authority in heaven on earth, which is a theme that Peter mentioned there at the end of the passage that Trevor just read, sends his followers out to teach him to disciple and to make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is very clearly connected to the Trinity. Our first vocab word in this series was gospel. If you're in Acts 2, I just want you to notice something and connect the dots, maybe in a new way. This Pentecost has just happened earlier in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is ascended into heaven. The Spirit has been poured out in the new covenant. And Peter gets up starting in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, and he preaches what all Christians throughout history, Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, ancient, modern, have all agreed. This is basically the first sermon in Christian history. Another way to think about it, it is the first public preaching of the gospel to non-Christians in human history, in church history. And from verse 14 to verse 36, Peter preaches the gospel. He says, this is the story. This is what Jesus has done for us. In verse 36, he concludes, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And notice what happens next in verse 37. Now the audience that heard this preaching of the gospel, which we talked about a month ago or so, they were cut to the heart with conviction. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do now? Like, like what are we supposed to do in response to this? And here's the response. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Because this promise of forgiveness, of the spirit, of salvation, it's not just for you, but it's for your children and for everyone who's far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So baptism is connected to forgiveness. It's connected to receiving the Holy Spirit. It's connected to being saved. So verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. Receiving the gospel, believing in it, is connected to being baptized, and then there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So you see, one of the central ways the early church thought about, once you hear the gospel and you have a sense of, I think this is true, what do you do? One of the first things the early church is telling people is get baptized. And so baptism is very, very central in the church. In this series in general, where it's called the grammar of faith, we're taking a vocab word, today's vocab word is Baptism. I'm going to spend some time giving you what I think is the content, the definition to this word. Then we'll talk some about grammar. How do you use this theologically, practically in your life? What does baptism mean? Some of you were baptized decades ago. How does this even matter to me anymore? Some of you aren't sure if you'll ever get baptized. Why does this matter? And then at the end, we'll talk about syntax. How is it connected to some bigger realities in the Christian life? At the very beginning of this series, I, I quoted um, Karl Barth, who talked about there is a language of Canaan that, that the church has. We need to know our own language and not just let the languages of the cultures around us kind of shape the way we think about God, talk about God, talk to God. But one of the dangers of Barth's view is that it can make us think that kind of like Koreans have their own language, it's just totally different than Italians. Christians, in, in one very real sense, we do not have our own language. When you become a Christian, we don't teach you a new language. You just keep speaking in English or Korean or Italian or Spanish or whatever it is. We don't have our own language. And, and it's helpful to connect the dots there that almost every single word we use, almost every single vocab word in our series is not a word that Christians made up. It was a word that people were already using. Gospel is a word that both Jews and Greeks and Romans were already using. Baptize is some of you will know this. It's one of those words that, for whatever reason, at least in English, I do not know about Korean and Spanish and other languages, but at least in English, we have just taken a straight transliterated into the English language. In Greek, it's baptizo for the verb. In the noun, it's baptisma. And so we haven't translated it. We've just taken it over. The, the most famous example of that, I think, in every single language is amen. I don't think any language translates amen into something else. Every language just kind of has amen there, which is originally from Hebrew, then in Greek. They just kept it all men. But here we have a word that was not only a common word and not a word that Christians made up, but it was a non-religious word. For instance, in Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And when the, the guy who's in kind of torment in the afterlife um, asks for Abraham to dip his finger in the water and come kind of soothe him, the verb for dip your finger in the water is baptizo. Uh -huh. In the uh, Gospel of John, on the last night of Jesus' life, one of the disciples, and I think it's actually Judas in John 13, takes the morsel and he dips it in the cup and then passes it around. The verb there is baptizo. One that Christians have always had a sense of, this is a good predecessor, is some of you might remember this story. There's a king in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 5 named Naaman, and he gets leprosy. And there's a prophet, not Elijah, but Elisha, after Elijah. And Elisha tells Naaman to go and dip himself in the river. And the verb there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is baptizo. And so this is, by pretty much common consent, a verb that is either used for dipping something in water or, and there's a debate over whether 
Christian baptism has any connection is it was also a verb that could be used for dyeing clothes a different color. And so it has to do with kind of one thing being immersed in another thing. Another way to think about the fact that this is not unique to Christians is almost certainly Judaism, at least forms of Judaism, were practicing ritual washings before John the Baptist and before Jesus showed up. If you know anything about world religions, rituals in which somebody goes into the water is a pretty common phenomenon. Um, in our household, we're big Star Wars fans, and so we've been checking out the first couple of episodes of The Mandalorian this season, and the first two episodes of The Mandalorian this season have baptism scenes, because the Mandalores are like their own cult of religion, and the opening scene is a scene of a kid getting ready to become a Mandalorian. Like, I mean, uh, Josh, I'm sorry, you're uh, you're closing your ears right now. And then, because if you know anything, this happened like seasons ago, the Mandalorian at some point took his helmet off, which is like the great sin in his religion. And so he goes back to Mandalore and he needs to be dipped in the water so that he can be forgiven of his sins. That is not Christianity at all, but that sounds really similar to baptism. And so this is a, Josh, you can, you can take your ears out, your fingers out of your mouth. This is a very, very common thing that whether it's the word, whether it's the imagery of going down the water, it's not unique to Christians, but the way Christians use it is unique. Some of you will know that in church history, this is something that separates Catholics from Protestants. I'll get to this in a second. Or different Protestant groups from each other. One, do we call this in the Lord's table, which we'll do after the sermon, do we call this a sacrament? And if we do, what the heck does that word mean? Baptists in the Protestant world tend to not like to call this sacraments. They tend to like to call it ordinances. That is, it's just a bang of command of Jesus. In the Catholic Church, along with most Protestant groups, there is language of sacrament, which kind of like Trinity last week, that's not a biblical word. That doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it's just a word that, that there's debate over where it comes from. But it's a word that basically when you were inscripted into the army in the ancient world, Tertullian in the early church talks about this a lot, you were kind of asked to make a pledge. And so there's this sense that in this moment, you're kind of being enlisted in a larger art, uh, uh, kind of group, but the word sacrament itself in Latin comes from a word that kind of means mystery, and so for Catholics and Protestants, there's always a sense of like, the one thing you know about baptism, the one thing you know about the Lord's Supper, there's always more going on there than you can actually articulate. There's always more going on there that you can fully get your mind around. It's a mystery, it's a sacrament. Between Catholics and Protestants, some of you will know Protestants have always insisted there are only two sacraments for ordinances, there's this baptism, there's the Lord's Supper. In Catholicism, there are seven sacraments. Penance is a separate sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Becoming a priest and ordained into the priesthood is a sacrament. So there's debates over how many there are among Protestants, and, and this can be good fodder for conversation after the service if you want. Um, the more you lean towards this just being an ordinance where you obey a command to remember something Jesus did long ago, the more you're going to lean into these things, the Lord's table, baptism, just being a symbol, just kind of a picture of something that happened long ago, but nothing's really happening right now when we do this. We're just remembering something that happened long ago. If you lean strongly into this is kind of magic, and, and, and even no matter what's going on in your heart and mind, if I dip water in over you or I dip you in water, you are saved. Does anybody remember the baptism scene in Nacho Libre with Jack Black, <laughs> where he's going into the wrestling scene with his partner? 
And the partner's like, I don't know why you're always judging me just because I believe in science. And, and Jack Black is like, I can't go into the ring with somebody who still belongs to Satan. And so he sneaks up behind him. He dips his head in water and kind of says the Trinitarian prayer over it. That, that kind of like baptism magically does something to you willingly or unwillingly is, I think, a bad view. We can talk about that later. In general, Protestants have, have a, a kind of in the middle view that this is more than just symbolism, but it also doesn't work by itself apart from faith. And so the language, you can look it up on your own later if you want. In Romans 4, about circumcision, that this is a sign and a seal of something that happens to us in Christ through faith. And so it is more significant than just a symbol. We're doing more than just remembering something that happened long ago. Something is happening when we take the Lord's table. Something is happening when people are baptized but it's not magic. It's not apart from faith. And again, we'll, we have lots of time to do Q&A afterwards. Happy to meet with you guys one-on-one. -on -one. The three things that, that we'll kind of talk about with baptism is who should get baptized, who's eligible for it, how should they get baptized, um, should we sprinkle water on people? Should we pull a kitty pool in here and kind of dunk you in the kitty pool? Um, I will say this is not unique to neighborhood church. Many city churches have to do this. I have it on good authority that multiple people have been baptized in neighborhood church over the years in the third floor bathroom in the in the tub in our in our building down the street. Many churches and cities will do that. How should we do this? The most important question is, what is baptism? Like, what's the meaning of it? What, what's it about? Um, and that ultimately, I think, will answer who should get baptized, how should we get baptized? With all that said, let me back up. And this will go back to our first passage that Abuka read in Matthew 3. Here, I think, for me, is the most helpful single way to think about baptism. But if you're anything like me, it immediately raises a huge question and problem which is, think about all the things we heard about in these texts. If you know anything about baptism, you've probably heard this. We're to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. We're to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. We're to be baptized after we repent. We're to be baptized to enter into the people of God. And so here is my framing question, and we'll come back to it at the end. Why did Jesus get baptized? And if you read Matthew 3, if you heard it, that is immediately what John the Baptist is worried about. You're coming to me. I should come to you to get baptized. Jesus, by common consent of all Christian groups in the early church, did not need forgiveness, never needed to repent, was born both as the eternal son of God and into the people of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. He was already in the people of God. He did not need to receive the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit forever. The Holy Spirit is described in Luke and Matthew. He was already in his life before baptism. And so here's my million-dollar question that I actually think is hard to answer, but once you see what's going on, it explains what baptism is for us. And, and to put it this way, why baptism for us is connected to all these things, forgiveness of sins, repentance, receiving the spirit. And so let's get into kind of the vocab. We'll come back to this question of why did Jesus get baptized once we lay some of the foundation? But I think that will be the key to understanding our own baptism. I, I would say this in the future, whenever I interview people who are interested in getting baptized, my central question is, how do you think your baptism relates to Jesus' baptism? If you can't answer that, then I think we need to step back and talk more about, because our baptism is a response to Jesus' baptism. Our baptism depends on Jesus' baptism. The meanings are very, very connected there. 
And so whether it's with just the, the ritual of baptism, the language of baptism, whether it's the imagery of water, which is what all the different directions have in common, let me just work, walk through real quick. If you want some of these texts, email me later, come talk to me. I'll just mention some of them. Here are some of the, if you want to use language of symbolism, here are some of the things that baptism seems to image and to be a metaphor about for, to kind of associate us with other things in the Christian life. The most obvious one is in baptism. If, if this is often called the meal or the feast, to become a Christian, you need to take a bath um, because you're dirty, because you need to be cleansed, because you need to get clean. And so baptism is an image of somebody who is dirty, somebody who is not ritually able, morally able to enter into God's presence and to be part of God's people, getting cleansed, getting washed. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul says, such were some of you before you became Christians, all these sins, but you were washed, you were justified. You were sanctified in our Lord Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, there is a debate about this, but I think it's pretty clear that this is baptism imagery. It's in the husband and wife thing, uh, a parallel, but Paul is talking about Christ in the church, and he says Christ has cleansed his bride by washing her with the water of the word. And yes, on the one hand, that probably is an allusion to the ancient kind of wedding practice of a bride kind of taking a bath and then getting into her wedding garment for the wedding day. But it, it, it's still saying that this is what Jesus does for us as his bride. And I think almost certainly there is an allusion to baptism there. Titus 3, Acts 22, the passage that Trevor just read, 1 Peter 3, all use washing, cleansing, taking a bath imagery and language. And so when you think about your baptism, you're going to get baptized, you have been baptized, you're seeing somebody else get baptized, you really should think about somebody is taking a bath and all the bad stuff is coming off and they're getting clean so that they can come into God's presence. A very, very different set of images that was especially in Stephen Romeo's passage. Just so you, if you didn't know, that was Stephen Romeo up here, not Grace Joy. Um, but when Stephen Romeo read um, in Romans 6, that baptism, and this is one of the big arguments, even though I'm going to ultimately argue against this, it's one of the big arguments for why baptism should be immersion and not sprinkling, that in baptism, you're going under the waters, kind of like Christ did, and dying with him, and when you come up out of the water, you're rising with Christ, and so in baptism, we die with Christ, and we rise with Christ, seems to be the main image in Romans 6, I would say it's also in Colossians 2 with baptism, kind of like circumcision. It's a cutting. It's a, it's, a, it's a violent act in which you die with Christ, and then you rise with Christ. It's also there in Colossians 2. And then, man, if we had more time, I would love to look at these. But another text, it's a parallel text in Matthew 10 and Luke 12, is Jesus with great yearning. You could almost say anxiety, fear, foreboding, talks about how um, overwhelmed I am until I am baptized with the baptism with which I must be baptized. And he's not, he's already been baptized at that point. He's talking about the cross that very clearly in some sense, Jesus describes the cross as his baptism. That is an act of violence. And so probably part of what's going on there, whether it's us dying with Christ or Jesus using this imagery to describe what's going to happen in the cross is if you know anything about water passages in the Bible is water is dangerous. The flood destroys people. The Red Sea destroys the Egyptian army. Often the psalmists talk about water. I feel like I'm drowning. And so baptism is, and if you are not parents yet, I promise you that if you ever have a child, 
And the first time you see your one or two year old walking around the pool, it will strike fear in you because you know what can happen with water. And so water is dangerous. It's associated with death, not just with life. And so we die with Christ, Christ on the cross, the waters of judgment flood over him. On the other hand, 1 Peter 3, John 3, Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, water in every culture is associated with life. You can't live very long without water. And so it gives uh, it gives us new life. We're born again. We're saved through water. At the beginning of the bulletin, I have two quotes, and this might be a little more for the conversation, the Q&A afterwards, but I'll say it now. Even though I disagree strongly with what I would call um, the, the, the traditional technical language for this view is baptismal regeneration. The water itself wipes the sin off your life. The water itself saves you. I don't hold that view. I do think Christians can be saved without the act of baptism. We can't be saved without faith. Nonetheless, I do worry about Protestant groups that really say all that matters is how you're feeling on the inside, and it doesn't matter whether you take the Lord's Supper or come to church, whether you get baptized. It's a massive mistake. The outer and the inner stay together is in 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about the flood and Noah's family being saved through the waters of judgment. And then he says, this corresponds to baptism, which now saves you. That's really strong language. This corresponds to baptism, which now saves you. Uh, Beasley Murray, George Beasley Murray, who was a Baptist scholar, says this. He thought only believers in immersion should be baptized, but he said the extent and nature of the grace which the New Testament writers declare to be present in baptism is astonishing for anyone who comes to this study freshly with an open mind. And so I would just challenge you to really read all the references to baptism in the New Testament and say, is baptism really kind of like just singing happy birthday to somebody on their birthday? It's just a symbol that remembers. It's like it's so much more than that. Adolf Schlatter, who was a reformed theologian who held the infant baptism and sprinkling, very different view, also says there is no gift or power which the apostolic documents, that is the New Testament, do not ascribe to baptism. So there is a sense of awe and wonder at baptism in the New Testament. It's often pointed out that the idea that there could be an unbaptized Christian would strike somebody in the early church, like there could be a doctor who hadn't gone to med school or, or, or whatever. It's just like it is so closely associated that if you're a Christian, you're baptized, that they don't even entertain the idea that these aren't there. Throughout the book of Acts in Galatians, which is all about to become a Christian as a Gentile, when you first become Jewish and obey the law and get circumcised, know that baptism is connected to entry, to initiation. One of the reasons that in general, I lean strongly into in the book of Acts, we see this over and over again. Once you have a sense that I'm a Christian, I've become a Christian, there shouldn't be too long of a time gap between baptism. Um, if you get baptized seven years after you become a Christian, that's fine. Um, but why didn't it happen seven years before? It should be associated with the entering of God's people. Um, and then I'll say, well, we'll come back to this at the end very briefly. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 10 real quick. We saw this in 1 Peter 3. I want you to see it in another way, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, just the very beginning, says this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, this is talking about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea 
and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now that, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that should set off red flags for you because baptism is never how the Exodus is described. There is no language in the Old Testament of being baptized into Moses. And yet Paul can look back just as Peter looks back to the flood with Noah in Genesis 6 through 8. Uh, Paul looks back to the book of Exodus and the people of God crossing the Red Sea and being saved through the water. And he says they were baptized into Moses in that moment. That baptism connects us to these bigger, former moments for the whole people of God, whether Noah in the flood, whether Israel going to the Red Sea, and says, that's what's happening to you as an individual when you get baptized. Is you're going through the sea, you're going through the water, and you go into it as a slave, you go into it in danger, you come up on the other side, free, liberated, belong to God, and it's being going through the water that kind of communicates that you're entering into something that happened to the people of God overall. It's a sign and a seal. And then I'll just say that, that during baptism, there's a sense of being accepted by God in Jesus' baptism. The heavens open. The Holy Spirit comes down. You're anointed by the Spirit to obey God's will for mission. You're empowered to live out your faith and life. And there's this declaration of love. Of, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There is a sense, we'll, we'll come to this in just a moment. There's a sense in which that, that is reduplicated and given again every time one of us is baptized. And so with all of this said, just kind of laying some of the groundwork, the basics, let me come back to this question. Why was Jesus baptized? None of this seems relevant to him. It all seems, and you can hear it in John the Baptist there, it seems dangerous that how could you say Jesus needs to get baptized without saying things about Jesus that are not true, that he wasn't part of God's people yet, that he was sinful and he needed forgiveness, that he needed to repent, that he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, that God didn't love him until this moment or he wasn't accepted by God. How can you say that? And so here is... I think the thing underneath everything else, which is in baptism, more than any of these specific things, here's what you are doing or what is happening to you when you get baptized is you are identifying yourself with Jesus. You are saying, I belong to this guy. His name, I'm now taking his name on myself. And I want to suggest in the same way, when Jesus was baptized, he was identifying with us, that he was taking our name onto his name, just as in our baptism, we take his name onto ours. Here's a great quote that I want to read uh, um, from a, a Reformed theologian who's, who's, I think, still alive. He says this, John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus was the most decisive precursor of Christian baptism and also provides the basic framework in which we understand our baptism. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with sinners and he begins their liberation. Jesus, being the sinless one, did not have to repent of sin, but he nevertheless chose to bury himself in the waters of death and repentance with sinners who deserve that. In his baptism, Jesus identifies himself with us as our brother, and at that moment begins to assume our sin and guilt. In other words, Jesus' baptism was but one aspect of his total participation 
in our broken and fallen humanity. It is continuous with his incarnation, becoming a human being at Christmas. It anticipates his coming death and resurrection, and it becomes ours through the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus' identification with sinners and his baptism becomes clear when we see that later he refers to his own death on the cross as his baptism, but this is entering into something that should have happened to us instead. For Jesus, his baptism by John and his identification with sinners in that act is another step in a larger baptism. He's saying there's a sense of which Jesus' entire life is a baptism, an immersion in human suffering and sin that ultimately leads to the cross and the resurrection through which he will release us all from sin and death. Jesus' baptism at the Jordan therefore anticipates his death on the cross, his baptism in blood, where he will again and finally identify with sinners by taking their burden of sin and alienation onto himself. Our baptism later on as individuals into Jesus' death and resurrection is possible only because at his baptism, Jesus voluntarily chose to join the community of sinners, assuming our real broken humanity and not some generic version of it. In the murky waters of the Jordan, Jesus committed himself to die on the cross as our brother and our savior. At this moment, he is identifying himself with us. In an old poem, Gerard Manley Hopkins says in one line, I am all at once what Christ is since he was what I am. That's a great description of in baptism, Jesus became what I am. So that in my baptism, I can all at once become what Christ is. Somebody I quote a lot from up here, Irenaeus, second, third century in the early church, summed up the gospel by saying the son of God became what we were supposed to be so that we might become what he now is. That is, Jesus entered into our story so that we could enter into his story. In baptism, Jesus entered into our broken story. In our baptism, we enter into his glorious story. And so there's this exchange there. And I think what holds baptism together, Jesus is in ours, is in baptism, you identify yourself with someone else. In baptism, Jesus identified himself with us. In our baptism, we identify ourselves with Jesus and with the God who sent Jesus, the Father, with the Spirit that Jesus brings. We identify ourselves with this Trinitarian God. And so let's move on. That I think this is what's under it. Who should get baptized? And it's obvious, somebody who is identifying with Jesus, somebody who has faith somebody who's repented of their sin, somebody who decides that God wants to, has a desire to enter into the covenant of God's people and with God, that in general in the New Testament, baptism always happens after you've heard the gospel. It happens after you've believed it, trusted it, responded to it. But then, of course, it raises this question, which I'll say this at the end. I'm pretty persuaded this debate is not going away before Jesus comes back. And so I'll talk about the implications of that, which is okay. But I, I become a Christian, I get baptized, and then I get married and I have kids. What do I do with my kids? And there's a debate that goes back to the very early parts of church history. Do we do with our kids what Israel did with their kids, circumcised, even before they have faith, even before they know who God is, or does that change? 
And there is a massive debate over this. I don't think it's a salvation debate. We actually, in our church, we could talk about this more afterwards in Q&A. We actually are open to both views. And even though, just, you know, I hold what, what's known as the credo baptism view. Credo is the Latin word for faith or the you need to be a believer. You need to, whether you grow up in the church or not, um, Kurt, the, the previous pastor here, holds the infant baptism. I know there are many people here who hold the infant baptism. As we look for a second pastor, it might very well be that the next pastor holds the infant baptism. Even if not, if you hold this view and you get married or you are married and have kids, we will baptize infants here. It's just I can't do that in good conscience, but we do not consider this like a disunity, break unity with each other. And so that's a, it, it does matter. It, it's something you should think about and you need to form your own convictions are. And so real briefly, let me just give you what I think is the strongest single argument for both views. The, the uh, Protestant view, which is taken over from the Catholic view, that the infants, not in general, but the infants of believers, adult believers, should be baptized, emphasizes continuity with the Old Covenant. That just as Jewish boys were circumcised, so Christian boys and girls should be baptized, just as God made covenant, not just with Abraham, but with Abraham's family, not just Noah, but Noah's family, not just with an individual Israelite, but with the whole people of God, so God continues to make covenant with families, with 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 uh, with not just individuals. It does raise a lot of thorny questions, like, does this guarantee that my kids are going to be Christians just because I'm a Christian? Um, it, it raises questions, but there's this sense that baptism in the new covenant is what circumcision was in the old covenant just as god when he called abraham and abraham was circumcised after his faith abraham's children were circumcised before their faith that that's still there and i think the great strength of this view is that it, it connects us in continuity to how god has always acted in history the main argument for the baptist view which i hold is that there's something new has happened and brought a change. There's discontinuity, and the main change is this. Whereas the people of God in the Old Covenant, you were you entered into the people of God simply because you were Jewish. Your mom and your dad were Jewish. If you were Jewish, you were circumcised. And overall, there were many people who did not actually know the Lord because it was an ethnic people. But within that people, there was a small remnant who knew the Lord, who had faith, who obeyed God's commands, who were committed to him. And so within the people of God, there is a distinction between those who are circumcised and those who actually have faith and knowledge of God and obedience. And in the new covenant, the prophets look for this. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, a day is coming when everyone will know me. The day is coming when everyone will have the spirit. I know that this is a trite and I hope not too offensive, but I really do. We should we should come up with our views from the Bible, not from consequences. But Karl Barth is the most famous example in, in the last couple of hundred years of somebody who grew up in the Reformed tradition. And even though he stayed Reformed, he moved towards a Baptist view. And his main argument, he went through World War One. He went through World War II. He saw Nazis and he saw Italians and he saw all these people in the name of Jesus associating with Christian states, Christian countries. Doing this, he said, the major argument against infant baptism is Europe. <laughs> the major argument against infant baptism is you get an entire society that is awful, but that bears the name of Jesus before the rest of the nations. And I think that's a great argument. 
I think that's a great argument, is we are putting the name of Jesus on a bunch of people who have not volunteered, who have not of it, who have not even chosen to bear it. And all of a sudden, just because you're born in Norway, just because you're born in Denmark, just because you're born in Germany, just because you're born in England, you're getting baptized. And, and even the, the state, the country as a whole will associate itself. And so there's a sense of we're actually continuing something. There's a larger group of people that all say they're Christians, but there's only a smaller group within that who actually are Christians. We're continuing the very thing that the prophet say is going to change once the new covenant happens. That to me is my, my strongest argument for the Baptist view, but it does then raise questions of what about kids and why has God changed this? We can, we can talk about that in Q&A afterwards. The most important thing I want to say is I am so convinced that in Ephesians 4, it's not a passage we had time to look at today, there is one body, there is one Lord, there's one God, there's one faith, there's one baptism. That baptism in the name of Jesus, whether by immersion or sprinkling, whether infants in the church or only believers, I think we should consider because the baptism emblematizes the gospel. And so as long as the gospel is what's being shown here, if someone on the one hand, infant baptism, somebody says, I sprinkled water on my baby, even if they grow up not to be a follower of Jesus, even if they grow up to be Adolf Hitler, I know they belong to God because this happened to them on the eighth day of their life or whenever. I, I think that's outside the bounds. But if on the other hand, you say simply because somebody professes an adult and gets baptized, but then falls away later, but you know, I would say that's also outside the bounds. One of the things we should all agree on is that baptism is not a get out of jail free card. In fact, if you still have that first Corinthians 10 passage open, that's actually why Paul writes that passage. Guys, don't you remember that this whole group of people came out of Egypt? They were all saved from slavery. They were all liberated. They were all baptized into Moses, just like you are. They all had spiritual drink and spiritual food, manna, water from the rock, just like we do every week. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they fell in the wilderness. Baptism is not a substitute for faith and obedience. It's not a substitute for representing Jesus in your life. It's just something that enters you into that. And so then it raises the question, how do we do this? Most historians would agree the early church leaned pretty strongly into emerging. A person went into the water. Water didn't get sprinkled or poured on their head. But I'll say a couple of things. And, and this is something that as a Baptist, I'm going against my own Baptist roots here. Guys, we're going to pass around grape juice in a couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> Baptists are legendary for being super loose on this moment. Like, you can have grape juice, you can have chocolate if you want, maybe hot chocolate and marshmallows. It's like, if we're so loose on this, which I think to some degree is good, I think it's absolutely fine to do grape juice. Why are we so literalistic on the mode? And so the mode to me is secondary to the meaning. Um, Lucy got baptized here in the last year or so. And if you remember, she was up here with Kirk and Kirk sprinkled water on her three times. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I am planning to do it that way when we do it on Easter. Um, I, I will say, as somebody who, who does think the early church did really lean into immersion, if you have the ability to do immersion, in a natural, organic way, I do think it's preferable. I don't think it's necessary. I would say, one, the early church has all kinds of baptism manuals about if you don't have access to a body of water, which we do not in New York City, we're not going to the East River, guys. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to jump in the East River. We're not going to sneak into the reservoir in Central Park. We don't have access to a body of water. And I also think that in order to preserve some literalistic sense of immersion, that we bring a kiddie pool in and we fill it up, there's so little dignity in that. Um, it's just, it's so goofy. Um, 
But I would say if we had our own massive sanctuary in New York City and we had a baptismal font, I'd be totally fine with this. But I think the meaning is what matters. And, and even in 1 Peter 3, here is actually the central text that you should have in your mind. If you meet somebody who says, look at what the New Testament says about baptism, you can't be saved unless you get baptized. If you were baptized, even if you don't have faith anymore, you are saved. 1 Peter 3 is actually the central text here. Baptism now saves you, just like Noah's family was saved through the ark, through the flood. But then Peter immediately gives a qualification. Not as the act of removing dirt from the body. That's not what saves, but only insofar as this moment is an appeal by the person being baptized for a good conscience to God in faith through the resurrection, that if baptism saves insofar as it is the outward representation of faith, only insofar as it is that, Augustine in the early church very famously described a sacrament, you've probably all heard this before, whether you know it goes back to Augustine or not, is it is an outward sign of an inward grace. That's Augustine. And I think that's true that baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper, is faith going public. And so, whether it's Acts 22, rise, wash yourself of your sins, calling upon his name. Colossians 2, baptism through faith, for through three, is baptism, is if faith is never disassociated from baptism, baptism is never disassociated from faith, that these two things go together. Here's my favorite example. It, it's not all the time anymore, but traditionally in Western culture, when a guy and a girl got married, and they each put rings, which often still happens at wedding ceremonies. Here is the language. You've probably heard this before. With this ring, I thee wed. Am I single right now? <laughs> Did I just get married again? <laughs> if I forget this at home, am I not, am I not married? That, that it is appropriate to talk about the outward sign that signifies the inward reality as doing what the actual act of consent does. Everyone agrees historically. I, a guy or a girl can't just slip the song to somebody else they like and the other person is forced to marry them. <laughs> that, that the act of, and it's central to Christian marriages. It must be voluntary. There must be consent. There must be there. But you still say, with this ring, I be wed. I think that's basically how the New Testament talks about baptism, is it associates the sign very closely with what is being signified. But baptism is not the reality. The act of baptism is just a sign and a seal of something that takes place before it and apart from it. And so let's talk about grammar for just a couple of minutes. Um, in general, you'll notice in our bulletin, if you've not before, look at where we are now in the order of service. We have right before scripture reading, message table of the Lord, that's all locked in together, the word of God and the sacrament. In general, Protestant churches have a strong sense that the word, the preaching of the word and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, should go together, and that they're both weakened without the other, but they're both strengthened by the other. And so what we do in the Lord's table is interpreted to us by the sermon. What happens in the sermon lands on us more powerfully when we go through the sacraments. And so I actually would say, just to be explicit, I do think that when you're taking the Lord's Supper, you should anticipate something happens in this moment. I don't want you to get super mystical and loosey-goosey and be like, oh, you know, you know, I didn't feel. But just say, if you take the Lord's Supper in faith year after year after year, that will make a difference in your life. 
You will not just be remembering something that happened. You'll be meeting with Jesus, eating and drinking with him. You'll be fellowshipping with his people. You'll be looking forward to being in his wedding feast someday, looking back and giving thanks. And in faith, that actually transforms us. And I would say the same thing with baptism, insofar as it's closely connected with faith, that this will increase the person's faith and experience of God and the rest of us as we get to celebrate with them. And so God, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about later in this series, they emblematize the gospel. They sign and seal the gospel so it goes deeper into our life. Here's the second thing. And, and at some point, whether it's in this series or another one, we will have to do a series. We'll have to do a sermon on this is baptism teaches us not just with baptism, but in general, and, and this might be a new word for you, to think typologically as Christians about our lives and our existence. And, and let me give you two examples of what I don't mean by that. If, if you are or you've ever met a really conservative Christian who reads the Bible as a form of predictions about what's going to happen in, to the world in the future. So the book of Revelation predicted JFK, you know, the book of Daniel predicts the Middle East stuff. You're always reading the Bible to give you a head start on what other people don't know about is coming. That is the wrong way to read the Bible. And so don't think predictably, because I know this, because I know this that happened in the past. I know more of what's coming in the future. You don't. If you're more liberal and you're just a typical Western modern person now, your instinct is to think experientially, to think as my experience rises up, I'm just going to follow it because it will lead me where I'm supposed to go. And that's disastrous too. One, because experience is never self-evident. It brings no interpretations. Wherever you think it's leading you, it's actually just the culture unconsciously encouraging you to think about your experience that way. And so having no sense of something has come from the outside that reveals the key to being human and, and that guides my experience, you just lead with your experience. I want to say that thinking typologically is the opposite uh, and different than both of these. What I mean by this is when you think about, I used to not be a Christian. Now I am, but I still struggle with sin and I still live in a broken world. And I still so frustrated myself and I don't see God's kingdom nearly as much as I want to in the world. But one day Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth is what you're saying is kind of like Israel used to be in Egypt as slaves. But then in the wilderness, they were free, but they still struggled. And one day they were going to promised land. That's that's how I narrate my story. When I was a non-Christian, I was in Egypt. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm in the wilderness. And what's coming in the future is the promised land. As you think about your experience right now in the patterns. Another one is we are right now. Here's a great one. Why is Lent 40 days? And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that 40 days shows up over and over again. The flood, 40 days. Moses on the mountain, 40 days. Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days. Elijah on the mountain, 40 days. Over and over and over again is saying that we are going to regularly enter into somebody else's story as a way of making sense of our own story. Not because those are predictions of anything specifically. Another one is every time you sing, every time you obey God, how does the New Testament encourage you to think about it? It's like you're going and offering a sacrifice in the Old Testament, that you think about what you're doing as if it was this other thing that came before, and it gives you the lens for it. When you're baptized, it's like Noah and his family being saved to the waters. It's like Israel going to the Red Sea and becoming God's people, becoming liberated. That's what's going on here. Often when we get frustrated with the nations and the peoples and the cultures that we live along, we remember it's kind of like Israel. We're in exile in Babylon. That's what it means to be an American Christian. You're in exile in Babylon. 
you think, not because the U.S. is Babylon, not because you're literally in exile, but because what that was is the interpretation of where you are right now. We need to learn to think typologically, which is why I'm such a big believer in the church calendar. It constantly encourages us to take our bearings from what happened, not as a prediction of what will happen necessarily for us, or as, ah, that's just one way that human beings accounted for their experience. And so whether I find it helpful or not, it's up to me, but it's saying, this is the key that unlocks my story. Jesus entered into our story so that we could enter into his. Here is, and I'll end after this. Here, here's Bonhoeffer saying, here's how we should read the Bible. Here's, here's how we should live our, our Christian lives. The scriptures, and, and especially for those of you who are reading through the Bible in a year with us right now, such a great mindset. But every time you open up the Bible, the scriptures set the people of God in the midst of the wonderful world of revelation of the people of Israel, with its prophets, its judges, its kings, its priests, its wars, its festivals, sacrifices, and sufferings. The fellowship of believers is woven into the Christmas story, the baptism the miracles and teaching, the suffering, the dying, and the rising again of Jesus Christ. The church participates in the very events that once occurred on this earth for the salvation of the world, and in doing so, it experiences the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Consecutive reading of biblical books, reading through the story regularly, rather than picking and choosing what already fits your experience forces everyone who wants to hear to put himself or herself or to allow themselves to be found where God has acted once and for all for the salvation of humanity. We become a part of what once took place for our salvation. Forgetting and losing ourselves, we too pass through the Red Sea. We too journey through the wilderness. We too go across the Jordan into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief, and through punishment and repentance, experience again God's help and faithfulness. All this is not a mere story, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. There God dealt with us, and there he still deals with us. Our needs and our sins and judgment and grace. This is maybe the most countercultural statement I can imagine for those of us who are modern Westerners. He says this, it is not that God is the spectator and sharer of our present life however so important that is, but rather that we are the reverent listeners and participants in God's action in the sacred story, the history of Jesus on earth, and only insofar as we are there is God with us today also. A complete reversal occurs. It is not that in our life God's help and presence must still be proved, but rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did for Israel and for his son, Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends for you today. The fact that Jesus died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I, too, will be raised on the last day. Our salvation is outside of ourselves in him. I find no salvation in my life history but only in the history of Jesus Christ. Only he who allows himself to be found in Jesus, in his incarnation, in his cross, and his resurrection, is with God and God with him or her. In this light, the whole devotional reading of the scriptures becomes daily more meaningful and powerful, what we call our life, our troubles, 
Our guilt is by no means all of reality. There in the scriptures is our life, our need, our guilt, and our salvation. Because it pleased God to act for us there, it is only there that we shall be saved, only in the Holy Scriptures. And by participating in Jesus' story, do we actually know our own history? And so there are so many other things I could talk about, but um, I'll just connect it to one thing for, for the sake of time. I know I went over last week and I, I committed to not doing that this week with baptism. When we baptize somebody, just like when Jesus, when Jesus was baptized, he took upon himself your story. Let's put it this way, your name and all that your name signifies. In baptism, when we do it, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday, we're going to put the name of Jesus on the lives of a bunch of people who will henceforth, both as a privilege and as a responsibility, bear the name of the Lord before the nations. And so what baptism means is that just as long ago Jesus entered into our story, baptism is every moment in the church's life when another individual joins that story. Because that's the story we're in, not our own story. We pass from death to life, from the old to the new, from our story into Jesus' story. And so I encourage you, whether you are remembering your baptism, whether you're um, thinking about whether you will be baptized, or you're watching someone else get baptized, every time a Christian gets baptized, when you got baptized, this is the moment, at least externally, when the heavens open, a relationship with God is reestablished, and a voice comes down saying, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased, and you get to start sharing in that story, which is why the best baptism ceremonies I've ever seen are marked by celebration. Kind of like the angels rejoice, baptism is a time of celebration, that something new, the old has gone, the new has come, because we have entered into Jesus' story. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the um, sacrament, the ordinance of baptism. Thank you that for all of the disagreements we have about it in the body of Christ, that there is this sense that, that Jesus entered into our story when he was baptized 2,000 years ago, so that we might now, each time someone hears the gospel proclaimed by the people of God, each time someone finds the Spirit working in conviction in our heart, I think this is right, I think this is true, I think I want this, I think I need this, and, and then gets baptized, that there's an entering into what happened in Jesus for us. And so would you help us to remember that we have, if we are believers, if we have faith and have repented and we've been baptized, that there is a past tense, we have died with Christ and we have been raised up with him. We've been cleansed from our sin. We are robed in white. We are clothed with Christ. And every time someone enters our midst and, and begins following Jesus with us, would you help us to just remember what this is, to realize what this is, to rehearse what this is? Would you help us to be a people who really are far more fascinated by and attentive to the story of Jesus than we are either to the story that's out there in politics or, or being super anxious about what's coming in the future or navel-gazing at our own experience and constantly having our eyes on how we feel and how things land on us. Would you help us to look away from ourselves to Jesus, knowing that in baptism, his story has become ours, that the voice of love and delight and affirmation from the Father the reception of the Holy Spirit is now extended to us 
when we come to him in faith. And so thank you for that, Father. And, and Jesus, thank you for identifying with us. And thank you for allowing us to identify with you. Thank you that as the letter of Hebrew says, that you are not ashamed for us to be your brothers and your sisters. We thank you for that. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name.